Australia has got some great crime writers, as do other countries. And if this is your genre you like to read, I'm sure you would know the English crime novels by Nikki French. It was my surprise when I found out that Nikki French was two people, Nikki Gerrard and husband Sean French. Welcome Welcome back to you both. It, we, are, to be here. we are so pleased to be here in this very crowded room. It's terrific. <laughs> Your latest book, The Favour, has 29-year-old Dr Judith Winter mixing with some very cool people. Were either of you the cool ones at school or uni? <laughs> I think we were, actually, I think, do you know, we're going to get deep into our marital problems because I think that he was the cool one at school, but I, was, I, I definitely wasn't. I, but I think... We, I, think I just it, tell him that. <laughs> I don't... <laughs> but I, I think in a way we, that we, the, the impulse for that was... was that I think someone like Jude who's led, led a sort of perfect life but she always feels, you know, what's that feeling, a FOMO, feeling of missing out, that there being somewhere else, that other, other really, while she was being a good girl, becoming a training to be a doctor, there were, the, there were always the cool people off having fun. So in a way, in this, one of the things that happens in this book is she kind of gets disastrously sucked into the, the cool people. Well, these cool people share a house. And they, uh, it's the way they dress and what they do creatively and how they behave with drinks, drugs and sex. But even the house that they live in, all those bedrooms, is really cool. Is it uh, with its attics and balcony? Is, was it based on a house that you... But is, it, is it really cool or is it really creepy? I mean, I think she begins off thinking that it's cool and it's full of bohemian kind of people. And bit by bit, we wanted the house to become more gothic mm. more like a fairy story and she gets sucked into it and actually she almost she just can't seem to leave the very uncool ordinary jude winter comes to this house because of liam the book starts 11 years earlier so what's their connection yeah the uh, so the, 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 it's about that uh, it, this is about her jude is now you know as you said she's she's almost 30 but she's, she's, there's this connection to her first. Her first love was this when she was a teenager. Was the kind of bad boy Liam, <laughs> and they had this very passionate. It was a passionate first love for her, and then they completely, for reasons that we're not, you know, are not we're not totally clear about at, at the beginning of the book. Uh, they they completely lose time. It was a romance they, that she didn't even tell her parents about. Yeah, that's right. Which made it more romantic, of course. It was this absolutely illicit, passionate sexual affair, and it was the first time she'd kind of let herself go. And probably by the time we meet her, the last time as well, because she's a very controlled young woman. As Sean was saying, everything is on track. You know, she knows what's going to what her life is going to be like. Well, that's not how the book starts. <laughs> no, no. This is the very first paragraph. <laughs> yes. And, right, so this is how the book begins. A scream ripped through the air. She didn't know if it came from her or from him as his hands flew up to cover his face or, or from the car itself as it left the road with a screech of tyres on tarmac. Then silence. The tree filling the windscreen, its leaves black in the headlights. A crunch of metal and the lights went out. Her face rammed hard against something, pain flowered in bright colours inside her skull. She tilted her face and opened her eyes, seeing blues and reds and nasty purples. There was a silence in the car. Terror washed through her, and the terror was bigger than the pain. Please help me, Jude said all. Yeah. 
So there's no contact. And then here is Liam again, 11 years later, and this is what she sees. <clears throat> Liam Birch, with his dark eyes and his smile. She saw him at 18, and as he was now. He looked older than 30, as if life had duffed him up. One of his teeth was chipped. He had tiny wrinkles round his eyes. He had a beard and smoke-stained fingers. His jacket was old, but he'd always worn old clothes, rummaging through second-hand shops for things that took his eye. He was still beautiful. Yes. Well, Liam asked Jude for the favour. Mm. What was the favour? Well, that the um, it, anyway, that's where the whole book for us came out of. We had this conversation as if there's someone, if just this moral problem, if someone has done something for you in the past and then they come to you, something really important, and they come to you and say, "Can you do me a favour? Do you just have to say yes, whatever it is?" And it was, we we kept arguing about, well, "Do you really have to, whatever it is?" And we disagreed about it. So we thought and that, we had, it actually it was because we disagreed about it that we knew that one day we'd have to write a book about it. And that, in fact it was Sean who thought that you just unconditionally had to say yes and I was more wary although I actually think in real life that I'd be the one to <laughs> ridiculously say yes and you'd be you'd have more kind of moral logic about it but and it was because we just couldn't decide we went back and for years and years we tried to find a story that would kind of fit that moral question about what what should you do I mean the favour when it what he asked her it seems very harmless and it seems like nothing. But she's not quite sure why he's asking her to do this very simple thing. And, uh, of course, being a, the kind of novel we write, it's a terrible, turns out to be an absolutely <laughs> terrible decision. And it upends her life. So he asks her to drive his car and leave, uh, buy some petrol with his card, buy some food with his card and meet him at a train stop at 9.30. Yeah, so it does she, sound suspicious. She, she, she does it all and she goes to pick up Liam at the train stop. And he never arrives. So there she is in the middle of nowhere, having not told anyone what she was doing, with her fiancé back at home thinking that she's visiting her granny. Mm. And actually it's from that moment that her life just unravels and comes apart. And in a way, what we're always interested in writing as Nikki French is those moments where a life that you think you have under control can come apart. So you think you're walking on firm ground and then actually you fall through the thin ice, um, which is what happens to Jude. Well, of course, it's a crime novel. So police <laughs> are involved and Jude is caught up in a murder investigation. There's Detective Inspector Leela Fox, who who tells Jude who died. Yeah. <laughs> social, social media spreads quickly. So Nat, Jude's fiancé, finds out before she even gets home. Mm. And all the people in the house find out who she is for the first time. Mm. And social media. Well, let's, let's find out who she is. 173, please. Yeah, so she, she, um, so she, this one, she, get, she basically gets involved with, with Liam's friends and the place where he lives and this friend this friend suddenly says to her your full name is judith abigail winter you're a care of the elderly doctor you studied at bristol you're engaged to nathaniel weller but aren't any longer and we all know why that is jude felt her, law her jaw tense you lived with him in a flat in stratford but don't any longer you grew up in shropshire same as liam you have one brother your father works for the council 
Your mother is a nurse. You were Liam's girlfriend when you were 18. People who knew you both at the, both at the time say it was a very unlikely match. Liam was going to join you in a cottage in Norfolk the day he was killed. You're his executor. In the last week or so, you've been described as slight, pretty, elfin, strong, frail, distraught, defensive, defiant, plus, other th plus lots of other things I can't remember now. You've done your homework, Erica shrugged. Five minutes online. We're all curious. You can't blame us. Oh. So she is Liam's executor in his will. So she has to find out all his financial documents. And this oh, Liam has got a, what, a, quote, chaotic collection of records, both at the house and then where he works. So where does Liam work? He's, he's a carpenter and a kind of joiner with, with one of his friends who also lives in the house and is also quite a disreputable unreadable character so he works in a kind of there's a kind of workshop down the road with lots of wooden bits and pieces he's someone who's very good with his hands he's a, he's a kind of problem solver. I mean in a way I think, I think Jude suddenly gets a chance to go into a kind of life that she's t rejected in the past but has always been rather attracted to that seems kind of people who don't have the values she has who don't live the safe life that mm. she lives and I think lots of people have that as we go through our life there's a bit of you that has that temptation as you think you know to or oh, could now be a bit riskier you know to, well, Liam's workplace is where his funeral is held. And then there was the wake back at the house afterwards. It was not a sombre affair. When we wrote The Wake, we, we, we kind of had this idea of a... It was almost like a kind of timeless space that she enters where people just don't seem to leave. And it goes... It, the Wake actually lasts an awful long time. And then she looks back on it. The events of the night were like the jumbled pieces of a dream with their own internal logic. Episodes stood out with a lurid brightness in Jude's mind, like spotlit vignettes in a murk. Tara and Danny snarling at each other, fighting over Alfie and over the love of a man who was dead. Erica's confession, if confession was the right word for something she obviously didn't regret. Doc's baleful stare and his hand on her breast. Dermot upending the laden table, a look of misery and triumph on his face. Irina wild and vengeful by the bonfire. Danny regally calm, stalking the party like a tragic ghost. Vin standing on the table, conducting the dancers. Vin leading her to the roof. Vin leading her to his room. Vin saying she was part of the family now. Now you've made it scary. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Liam's mother, Tara, quote, You were there the first time everything went so wrong for Liam, and you were there at his death. It's odd. Somebody's telling lies. <laughs> oh, look, it was a ripper of a read, an absolute <laughs> ripper. You write in the acknowledgements that you actually say that you wrote it through COVID. You know, you couldn't mm. write it because you couldn't get out, but thankfully you had each other. Yes, that's right. So how do you do it? Have you got a big whiteboard that you sort of plop things and how do you do we it? Do, we don't have a whiteboard, but what we do is we spend weeks and months kind of coming up with the plot or the kind of beating heart of a novel and then the kind of characters and the voices told in and the kind of the journey of the book. And then when we know we've got the same book in each other's 
head then we go to our separate writing spaces and mine is right at the top of the house and Sean's is in the garden in a shed so we're as far away from each other as we possibly can be and then one of us will write say the first chapter and then we'll email it to the other to edit and change and add to and even erase if they choose to and then they will write say the next chapters we pass it between us like that but we're both trying to write into the voice of this mysterious third person we've created between I, us I mean, called we, Nikki we, I mean, we started doing it because we were both, when we met we were both journalists so we just had the idea that could we could we maybe collaborate and as Nikki said create one voice and I think the thing that took us by surprise when we did it because we're very separately we're very different writers different styles but when we somehow collaborating we did became become a different character we, we write i think as nikki french in a way that we don't write on our, separately it's very it's very mysterious to us mysterious <laughs> so you don't take on a character well no, i think we no, do no. In a way. we take we, we take on the character of the of the person the protagonist at the heart of the story like every kind of fiction writer we try to get under the skins of each of our characters and now that's one of the great joys of fiction writing that all the kind of boundaries between the self and the world can collapse um, so we take on the characters that we're writing about. We take on the character of Nikki French as well, I'd say. Which is, you know, it is odd that there is this third person in our marriage. And here she is, sitting, <laughs> sitting between us. And it's an, but it's an act of great trust, really. We have to trust each other to be able to write together like this. Well, the consequence of doing the favour turns mild-mannered Dr Jude's life upside down. Nikki French has written a crime novel where the reader is concerned for Dr Jude's own safety in this murder investigation. Thank you so much, Nikki and Sean. Oh, thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Well, there seem to be parallels between yeah, <laughs> the novel under COVID and harmless not being harmless <laughs> and uh, skating on thin ice, social media. All of this comes out in uh, the novel that Ronnie Scott has written entitled Shirley, but in a completely different way. So, Ronnie, welcome to 3CR. Hi, thanks for having me. I should say I'm, my head is still spinning from the fact that Nikki and Sean are both Nikki French, and I didn't realise that till we sat down in the studio. So my head is still deep in that conversation. It, it's amazing the revelations that come out on 3CR and published or not. But look, the first thing to establish, Shirley... Mm -hmm. And the significance of Shirley. Mm -hmm. What is Shirley? What is Shirley? So Shirley is is the name of the book, and it's not the name of the protagonist, right? Um, you you mentioned before, um, kind of before we sat down, that she doesn't she doesn't have a name, um, and that's true. Uh, Shirley is the name of the house that she grew up in. Uh, Shirley is the name of a house in Abbotsford that this uh, this woman in her thirties, who's the narrator and protagonist of the book, uh, grew up in with her mother. Uh, who was sort of a, a minor food celebrity, still is, um, but but was in Australia and on Australian TV uh, when when the protagonist was a child. Uh, and and Shirley, after her mother left the country, kind of 15 years before the book begins, which is at the start of the pandemic, uh, kind of in the wake of a scandal, Shirley becomes this this sort of grim house that she that she grows up in as a teenager. But it also raises this whole notion of identity because Shirley has more of an identity than the narrator <laughs> in, in some ways. It's kind of like what Nikki and Sean were saying about the third person in the marriage. It's like she has this, there's this kind of third presence in the book. But it speaks to what informs our identity, where we grew up, but then that relationship with her mother. Yeah. And basically... As you said, a celebrity chef, yeah. so-called celebrity chef, 
And basically, in the internet age, it, it gives people expectations yes. um, about you know growing up in the public eye. Yeah. So her um her mother um was young when she had when she had her when she had the protagonist. Uh, and so she's still, you know, in many ways, uh, you know, a young person as this book is being told, like in her 50s. Uh, and so they relate to each other in this this interesting way where they, they talk to each other uh, on the phone and via her mother's assistant and biggest fan, uh, who was sort of uh, the, the, the caregiver for, for the protagonist when she was... The Gerald. The Gerald. Uh, and really, I mean, people have asked me before why I was interested in writing about um, about celebrity and sort of D-list celebrity, I, I guess, uh, although maybe that's a bit unkind to the mother. But, but, I, but how much of our lives are yeah. led through celebrity or we often compare with celebrities? Yes, right. And, and I think that I, I really just w- was attracted to th- this idea that there'd be a protagonist and she would have a mother who she was distant with in some way, but would have access to in some other way. And so I love the idea that she's growing up as a teenager and then as an adult. And in some ways, you know, what she knows about her mother is, is limited to what goes through another person or sometimes what she sees on TV. Yeah. At at a distance. So here's the mother. I never got along with either of my parents, as you know, she went on. And most of the trouble, in my opinion, would have been so avoidable if they'd only been willing to come to the table in the full (laughs) humility of their own positions, which can always help us see as well as make us blind. What's in my heart? All right, you asked. I don't want a trio of dips. I find that a shocking thing to make for your mother. It used to be what they had at a pub, a trio of dips and beer. Or, if you were lucky, wedges and a sugary glass of wine. That's what I think of when I come to Melbourne. I didn't want to come back here. I'm here because I need to redo my organisational chart. (laughs) But, But the love, I mean... But here we go. The expectation of the uh, relationship protocols that you know we're meant to have between mm. siblings, between mother mm-hmm. and child, etc. Yeah, you're toying with those. Yeah, I like. I I mean, I really enjoy the relationship that she has with her mother. I, I loved writing it because they do have this strange way of relating to each other, which is kind of businesslike, and in, you know, in some ways, very kind of glossy and surfacey. But then, you know, when she talks to her mother for long enough, the, kind of the one scene that you have with her in the book, sometimes on the phone, you know, you get to what she really means and the heart of the matter, so to speak. But is that real? Is that more real than the sort of romantic relationships or the the, the romantic ideal we have in our mind of what? relationship should be sure and I, I think to me it's more interesting to think well why do we think relationships should be a certain way than than what they actually are like it's always about the fantasy that we construct um, the idea that we build about the sort of relationship you should have with a mother or a child mm. and also then let's put the Shirley mother and daughter together because <laughs> in the basement of the house mm-hmm. uh, there was a, an act that occurred for the television show and um, what was the actual uh, problem here? Was it the act or was it what the mother was wearing? <laughs> yeah, well, that's the question. So, I, I mean, the reason that the mother left the country was that she was photographed um, by the paparazzi outside of the house, Shirley, in the early 2000s in this kind of glamorous kind of cyan mint green coat, uh, which is the, the color on the cover of the book. And it was covered in blood. Uh, and, you know, it's not this, this sort of direct scandal. It's this very kind of strange... Uh, strange scandal, but there were there were rumors around it, and there was gossip around it. And she, yeah, I think she partly left the country because she didn't enjoy that, and partly because she just wanted to leave the country. But it got <laughs> distorted in the media. Yes. So, so what is actually real? So that's the problem. You do resolve it, or sort of, at the end yeah. in terms of what it's actually a question happened. that's toyed with through the book. But 
let's get on to this notion of relationships mm-hmm. then. We've had mother and daughter, but now we've got a whole series of other relationships. Uh, she goes to a party with um, a member of a band and ends up in the bedroom of another individual. Yes. And just as you think something sort of salacious is going to happen, um, we do, in fact, um, and if I get to the right page... Um, where are we? Because this is so sorted. I have to highlight that. While, yes, we did fool around in a room with a bad latch while the man who'd brought me to the party was in the backyard, hot-tubbing with strangers and friends. What was notable <laughs> about the experience was that it was so smiley and silly, probably because neither of us was trying to come. I had climbed on top of him and was leading us playfully, and it was just starting to become clear that the playful part of the evening was going to be, if not the whole of it, then... At least the lion's share. When the door swung open and the room was filled with a bar of hallway light, but nobody was there. Now, you're doing a number of things here. You're raising the spectre of an illicit relationship. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also then, discovery. Are they going to be discovered? Yeah. Yeah. I I should just say it's really wonderful to have uh, sex scenes read back to to you live on air. Uh, It's a unique experience. Uh, I I think... um, I mean, what happens at this party is she meets this man named David, a slightly younger man, who's this very kind of cuddly, sweet guy. And at the at the start of the book, um, you know, it's right at the, between the bushfires and the pandemic and they break up. And so kind of the action of the book is them figuring out what they're going to be to each other. Um, but in this scene, you know, they, they meet as they go on, right, in this sort of tender... Um, uh, loving, immediately loving, snooking really? way. Yeah, snooking is the word that David uses for what, what his cat does. Uh, and they sort of, they snook. And and that was what came into the room. The cat, yes. Meanie, yep. who plays, I won't say a pivotal role, but a meaningful role in yes. David's life especially. Yeah, and it becomes a pivotal role in the book. Well, at the end. At the end, yeah. Uh, Meanie, um, Meanie is this interesting character. He's, a, he's an old cat who uh, who lives near to David in the share house that... um that David's in at the start of the book uh, and he slowly comes to um, be more and more a part of the book. But David's also questioning his own sexuality as well and whether he's actually more interested in men. So there's another thing about the relationship, older woman, younger man, who's more in love with a cat than he is and questioning his sexual identity. You've got three other characters here that appear, Frankie, Alex and Abby, and, and Frankie's the connection between the two, but it's not the way you think. Yeah, so Frankie, this is, I mean, imagine writing the blurb for this book, by the way. It's this quite, it's this very quiet book, but it does have a lot of action and a lot of, a lot of kind of interesting interconnected character dynamics, right? But Frankie lives downstairs uh, from the protagonist, and she is a slightly older woman. So, you know, she's slightly older than the protagonist. She's slightly younger than the protagonist's mother. Uh, and she's pregnant at the start of the book, and she's also David's boss. Uh, so that's kind of the one coincidence that you can get away with at the start of the book, although it doesn't necessarily turn out to be a coincidence. Uh, but she is kind of a, a a businesswoman. She runs this uh, vegan fermentary and food manuf- manufactory, uh, and she's very interested in the protagonist, and the protagonist is interested in her for reasons that she can't quite place. But... There's there's Alex who's actually um, fathered a child yes. with Abby, and that's Gabby. But um, Alex is also responsible for Frankie's pregnancy. <laughs> so you, you're raising this whole notion of 
expectations when it comes to relationships, what we think is appropriate, moral, ethical, um, yeah. and the rigid guidelines. But life's not like that. No, I mean, nothing could be... I, I think it sounds and feels sometimes... It felt absurd sometimes when I was writing it. Uh, but also, I think that life is absurd and life is surprising and human relationships are always... Well, this is what brings me to the question. Are you making social observation or is this, in fact, social satire yeah. that you're offering us? I think that... Uh, I mean, one of the things about social media, not to soap, soapbox, but I think we get very used to talking about fiction and art as though it's celebrating or critiquing one or the other, right? But I think that most pieces of fiction, it's all sort of bound up together when you're telling a story, representing something, satirizing something, critiquing something, you know, it's always contradicting itself. And so I was really happy to write kind of scenes in this book that feel satirical and silly mixed up with social realism and... And you're also toying with the reader. I mean, I don't know whether I can sum it up, but I, I think the the um, bird that's able to ask questions actually yeah. highlights the absurdity of some of what we've got. The story of the bird that asked the question. I looked it up, and it was interesting. The bird's, fam the bird's famous because in his 31 years, a very short life for a parrot, he learned 100-plus words as well as numbers and counting, including zero quite complexly. People showed him objects and asked him questions. What shape is that? What colour? They asked him. And it was in this way that this African grey parrot learned to differentiate not just objects but their properties. And in the course of his learning, this bird also became the first and only non-human animal known to have asked a question. He looked at himself in the mirror and asked humans the same questions they'd asked him. What colour? And in this way, he learned not only the word grey, but that he himself was that colour. And it sort of gets back to this whole notion of identity, yeah. but the absurdity of an animal finding its own identity, which is basically what we're doing as individuals. Yes, and I should say that's a real story. That's a yeah. that's the, the animal that asked a question, Alex the Grey, the African Grey Parrot. Uh, but, yeah, I, I, I mean, she's this very kind of thinky, cerebral character and i like this idea that we can talk ourselves into not necessarily seeing what's right in front of our eyes and that's part of the plot and the action of the book yeah but also the expectation that we have mm. of how things should be yeah and there's nothing yeah. in the book that sort of conforms to how things should be it's in fact more real in that regard thank you yes i hope so I, and I, I also think that 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 sort of building a sense of the future and expectations and how things should be, it's inevitable, right? It's part of how we live and how we just build a, a sense of the world. But we as readers also come to a text mm. thinking it has to conform to our expectations. I mean, just like um, find, well, finding the couple in the bedroom at the party, mm. I mean, sordid, salacious, mm. emotional... No, it wasn't. <laughs> so you're setting the reader up and then... it undercuts yes yes i and i and i think that in some ways maybe that's through with the protagonist as well right like maybe some of the scenes and the, the things that happened to her and around her would be would be interpreted in a completely different way if she had a different character but i like this idea that she was this very kind of grounded and self-grounded figure kind of at the center of all of this plot grounded or, or grappling yeah. with her identity with the identity of the others with how others are behaving but she does find meaning in the end can we give it away i mean or oh, not i don't want to give it away that, not no. too much but a very Im important uh, relationship she has yeah there's a there's a change in the book there's sort of an emotional lift in the book uh yeah and and i think that it changes her as well 
Well, of course, you don't have to read the book uh, to find out what happens, or what happened at Shirley, and how the protagonist actually finds a little bit of comfort and solace in the end. Time? I'm worried about the cat. You're worried about... (laughs) Never fear about the cat. The cat is a rescue cat, but who's being rescued? The cat or the individuals? (laughs) The book is called Shirley. It's Ronnie Scott, and it's a Penguin Random House release, Jan. And I spoke with Nikki French, both of them, (laughs) about their book The Favour by Simon & Schuster. Well, that... We we did a lot of... What a busy studio it was this morning. Yeah, so we better get on to the next thing, which is City Limits.